Good morning. Welcome to the gathering of Recreate Church. Have a good week so far? Or did you just kind of get here? <laughs> My week was sort of up and down, but uh, very, very thankful for, for to be here with you guys. So thankful to see some folks back. We've had some people out sick. So thankful, so thankful, and continue to, to remember folks in prayer. You are welcome here. Uh, one of our big values, something we've talked about from the beginning, is that anyone who walks through the door doesn't automatically have to believe everything we believe. So if you're inviting someone to a church service and say, well, I don't know if I go for all this, say, hey, that's okay, come on in. It, our policy is that you know if you're here, so you're sincere, uh, it, you don't have to believe everything we believe straight through the door. Uh, seekers and skeptics and, well, trade-up atheists are welcome, wanted, and loved. Because that's what Jesus did. It, was, it wasn't the religious people that Jesus hung out with. It was the, the folks who, who kind of knew that something was off, or the, or the people who were seeking the truth. Now, I'll be very plain. We do think that people who hang out with us, this Jesus stuff's going to rub off on them. And this stuff about redemption and love and salvation and forgiveness is kind of contagious. That's the good kind of contagious. So uh, we unapologetically want to introduce everyone to Jesus. Not because we want something for them. We don't even pass a plate here. It's because we want something for people. We want people to find the hope and life and peace in Jesus. They can only be found in him. So, so um, another big value. One of the core beliefs that we do hold is we believe the Bible. We believe the Bible really is God's word. It really is God's message to people. And that the, the Bible, God's word, tells us how to live this life that the Lord has called us to. So I'm guessing, looking out through this crowd... We have a lot of our regulars. It's the Sunday after Easter, which is hilarious to me. It's like Easter is always like this big Sunday. And then like the next Sunday after Easter, everybody got their church in for the year. You know what I'm saying? It's like, whoo, we did the church thing last week. So I'm extra thankful for the folks who are here. And you, I never, I don't know the story of, of the folks that aren't, but it's like, I know, I know the people who show up the week after Easter, they're usually like in, in, you know what I mean? They're like, okay, they're in, in. Um, they're here really because they want to be, absolutely. And uh, I'm, I'm going to guess that most of you would say, yes, I believe the Bible. Yes, I believe the Bible. And if someone said to you, okay, you believe the Bible, why do you believe the Bible? You might say something like, oh, well, it's, it's God's Word. It's true. I believe the Bible because it's true. But what if they just pressed it a little further and said, well, how do you, how do you know it's true? Well, you might say because the truths of the Bible have changed my life. And they might say, oh, okay, but people in other religions think that their truths have changed your life. Well, how do you know the Bible really is something that came from God and not just something that people wrote? And uh, hopefully, you, you know, that might get a little frustrating at some point. Maybe you've had, the, had that moment where you've like, tried to argue somebody into believing. You notice that doesn't normally work. It, it almost always backfires. Remember the first time I tried to argue somebody into the kingdom of God? I was like 18. And uh, it really did not go well at all. So I kind of gave up on that. If someone's determined not to believe, no amount of evidence is going to change their mind. But the Holy Spirit can. Ask Saul of Tarsus what the Holy Spirit can do can wake you up. But, but what about us? We say we believe the Bible. 
But maybe we should fairly ask the question, well, how, how can we know the Bible is true? If we're going to say, yes, I believe the Bible, yes, it's true, if we were put to it, could we, could we back up the claim? Because we, we don't want to be skeptical, but we want to know that we are believing something that is true, right? Makes sense. Good news. The Bible has its own built-in system of verification. It's called prophecy. See, the Bible dares to do something that no other religious text does. It makes specific, predictive prophecy that can be shown to have been fulfilled in history. The Bible makes lots and lots of prophecies. Many of them applied to Jesus, and he fulfilled many, many, many of them, and there's more to come. But we've seen already in the book of Daniel, we've seen some fulfilled prophecy, right? If you've been around for this study, you've noticed that that series of four empires that rose and fell, that has been a big theme in the book of Daniel. And the the word of God predicted this rise and fall of empires. Some of them were, you know, much later. They, they were, no one had even heard of Rome hardly when the Bible predicted that Rome would dominate the world, for example. And it just, it just gets more interesting from here. So we're in Daniel chapter 8, and you can see the picture up here. It's like a goat jumping at a ram, and the goat's got one big horn. It's pretty weird, pretty weird looking, but I, it's, it's going to be interesting. You don't have to be a Bible nerd to get excited by this. So in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel is probably 65, 70 years old. He's early into his retirement from uh, being a royal advisor. He's probably writing his memoirs and, and doing whatever Daniel did on a daily basis. He's, uh, this is about 10, 12, 13 years before the lion's den story. Everyone knows the Daniel and the lion's den. This is a, like a decade plus before that. Babylon is still in power. So Daniel is praying, he's meditating, and he has this vision in the middle of his prayer time. He sees himself standing by the banks of a river outside a city, and he recognizes both of these places. He recognizes it's the river Ulai outside of the city of Shushan, also called Susa, which was a city in the Babylonian Empire that was a big defensive stronghold. And he, he's standing there by the river, and he sees a ram. A ram appears by the river, not a dodge ram. A ram ram, like a sheep ram, like a male sheep with like, big, like a bighorn sheep looking thing. You get me, right? A ram appears. And he notices the ram has two curving horns. One of the horns starts out smaller, but then grows bigger than the first one. More powerful. Kind of like when the younger sibling outgrows the older sibling and the balance of power shifts. Do we have any younger siblings in here? And you outgrew some of your older siblings? Your time is coming. And then, then you're like, okay, all these years of bullying... I'm going to make it right. See, Alexis has no idea what's about to happen when Elijah outgrows her. And you know what? As long as it doesn't get too far, I'm going to be blind and deaf briefly. Because uh, don't you, hey, you need to close your mouth. You got it coming, girl, just so you know. So uh, this horn, one starts out small and it becomes big. Okay, what does that mean? We'll see a little later. So as Daniel watches, this ram runs all over the place, ramming. All the animals that stand in its way. And eventually, it has knocked down every animal there in the river valley, and, and the ram dominates everything that can be seen. Seems like nothing can stand against 
the ram. And then another contender enters the battle. On the western horizon, there appears a goat. And this goat comes speeding at the ram so fast, it doesn't look like its feet are even touching the ground. Something different about this goat. Normally, a, a billy goat has like two horns, right? Like two not very big horns, sometimes really, really small. Well, this particular goat has one horn right between its eyes, like a unicorn, okay? It's like a unicorn goat, a goatacorn, a goatacorn. I just promise you, you're not going to get any sermon titles like Daniel and the goatacorn anywhere else. You can only find that exclusively. Recreate Church, Daniel and the goatacorn. It just makes sense. Daniel and the goat. It made sense to me. It's not as catchy as Daniel and the lion's den, but hey, you've heard Daniel and the lion's den. Probably haven't heard Daniel and the goatacorn. So, um, the unicorn goat, the goatacorn, runs right at the ram in terrible fury, and he smashes into the ram, kind of like that boulder from Indiana Jones, and it's like boom, hits him so hard that both of the ram's horns are broken off, and just destroys this ram and the. The goat just tramples him to pieces, and it, it seemed like the ram was unbeatable before, but now the goat has, has just, he's no match for the goat. And the goat, in Daniel's vision, grows bigger and stronger, and he seems to be unstoppable. But then something happens. Without being attacked, without being damaged by some outside force, that one single unicorn horn on the goat breaks off. And in its place, four smaller horns, still powerful, but smaller, four horns, grow. Now, I know all this animal imagery is, is kind of weird. There's a reason why you don't hear Daniel and the goat of corn normally. It's a, a, an unusual subject matter to hear about this sort of thing. It's not the easiest thing to follow. So I just want to make sure we're on the same page. Let's just catch everybody up right here. So Daniel has a vision, and he sees a ram that dominates everything. Until a goat comes along, the goat has a unicorn horn, and it's a goatacorn, and it beats the ram. But then the unicorn horn falls off, and four horns grow in its place. Simple, right? Simple. Weird, but simple. We learned in the book of Daniel that in this, this imagery that's used, that a horn represents a, a king or a kingdom, or both, a king or a kingdom. So applying that to what we're learning here, how many horns does the ram have? Two. And the two horns will represent two kingdoms. That makes sense so far, right? All right, at first, how many horns does the, the goat have? He has one big, strong horn. So doing the math, we could say that must be one very strong king. One undivided kingdom. And then that horn breaks off and four grow in its place. What does that suggest? Four kings, four kingdoms. Hey, you guys are with it. You Bible scholar, pat yourself on the back. You're Bible scholar today. So now it gets a little more unusual. Another horn appears. Another one. This one grows out of one of the four horns. So the, one of the four horns grows a horn. Weird. Okay, I get it. If human beings were making up the Bible, they would probably make it a little less confusing than that, right? 
So another horn appears, growing out of one of the four horns, and as you thought it was strange already, that little sprout of a horn starts attacking the Holy Land. How does that work in the vision? I don't know. I don't know, but Daniel could tell that 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 one horn was waging war against the Holy Land and God's people. So Daniel, how would you feel if you were Daniel right now? You're in a vision already, and you're seeing all these strange animals. Would you feel confused, curious, wondering, what does this all mean? Well, that's exactly how Daniel felt. He's, he's looking around. He's in his vision. He's like, what? I wish somebody could tell me what this means. And as if in response to his wish, a figure appears by the river in his vision. And a loud commanding voice says, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Gabriel. Have you heard that name before? Well, no, that's part of the Christmas story, right? Gabriel. Wasn't Gabriel the angel that came and, and talked to Mary and said, you're going to have a baby? And Gabriel shows up a few other times in the scriptures. But Gabriel, yeah, he's a famous angel. This is the first time we ever meet Gabriel. So Gabriel, the angel, is there, and he walks up to Daniel. Now, I understand that in art and in media, most of the time, angels are depicted as, as beautiful female figures whose presence is very comforting and very like, oh my goodness, how beautiful it's an angel, or oh, how wonderful an angel is here. But what actually happened in the Bible was more dramatic than that. The angels could have any number of appearances. Most often than not, they were kind of a male-looking figure, and their presence was not exactly comforting. Do you know what happened most of the time in the Bible when somebody met an angel? They fell flat on their face, terrified, wondering if they were dead. And that's exactly what happened to Daniel here. He just falls on his face, and he's flipping out, and he doesn't know if he's awake or if he's asleep. And that Gabriel has to come and pick him up and stand him on his feet. And Gabriel says to him, I have been sent to you to explain what will happen in the end times at the time of the indignation. Well, what could that mean? Some indignation. Um, we might use the word abomination. It's pretty close to the same thing. So, Gabriel begins to explain this vision, the ram and the goat. He says the ram represents the empire of the Medes and the Persians, Medo-Persian empire. All right, hey, two horns, right? Two horns. And it's, it's two kingdoms in an alliance. The Medes and the Persians made an alliance, and they conquered everything. Now, remember in the vision, one of the horns started out smaller and then grew much bigger than the other one well that's what happened in the alliance historically that's what happened in the alliance of the medes and the persians that the persians were were the less powerful of the partners but they grew to dominate all of it and later on a short time later it's just called the persian empire because the medes have really declined in power the persians Dominate. If you look it up in a history book, it'll say a little bit about the Medo-Persian Empire, but most of it's about the Persian Empire. And that was predicted in this imagery right here. So uh, then what came after the ram in the vision? It's the other animal. The goat. The goat with a unicorn horn. The unicorn goat. The goat of corn. 
The goat corn again, only here, recreate. Can you get a goat corn? The goat corn. Gabriel says that the goat corn represents the empire of Greece. Now, let me just say, when Daniel had this vision, it's hundreds of years before anybody cared about Greece. Greece was a small collection of city-states. Greece was not a threat to anybody over where Daniel was. Most of those people had not heard of Greece. Greece did not matter that far in the east where Daniel was over near Babylon. But God gave him this vision and said, this is the empire of Greece that will rise up. And that one large horn, Gabriel explained, the one large horn that you saw is the first great king of Greece. The first great king of Greece. Now, if you know anything about history, there is probably only one Greek king that anybody can name, and that is Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. Not called great because he was such a nice guy, or because he was a good or a moral guy. He's called great because he was a conqueror. He was undefeated in battle. That one large horn represents Alexander the Great. He came along, and in like 10 years, he completely wiped out the Persian Empire, which was known to have armies that numbered in the millions. And Alexander comes along with like 40,000 well-trained troops and just decimates them. He conquers everything that he deemed worthy of conquering in a very short amount of time. And he was going to conquer Jerusalem. The story goes that Alexander and his troops marched into Jerusalem with the intention of destroying the city and destroying the temple. But the priests and the rabbis understood the meaning of this prophecy. And the story is that they brought out Daniel chapter 8 that we're reading today and showed it to Alexander and said, your rise has been predicted by our God. And Alexander was so impressed at the prophecy that he decided to leave Jerusalem and the temple alone. And for most of the time that Greece was in power, they let the Jews have their religion and be fine. They, they did not oppress the Jews. Now, we'll see later they did, but at first they didn't. Now, I, I don't know. Here's Alexander, you know. Alexander, does Alexander believe in the true God? No. He believed the word of God was true. Should it be so hard for us? The problem is, most of the time, it's not that people don't want to believe the word. It's we don't want to believe what the word says that we have to change in our lives. That's a fact. I've never had anybody come to me and question the passages that make them feel good. Like, oh, yes, Psalm 23. I just don't know if I believe Psalm 23. No, it's the stuff, it's the stuff that says, hey, look, there's something going on in your life that you've got to deal with. That's the part that we tend to doubt or question. It's not the feel good. It's the this doesn't feel good parts of the Bible. But is it really so surprising that the creator of the universe might have a little bit of an opinion on how the creation should behave itself? No, not at all. So... Um, they must have told Alexander the rest of the prophecy, or maybe they wisely stopped right there and said, oh, yes, you're this great horn. Um, but may maybe they didn't tell him about the horn breaking off. I don't know. We, I don't know that part of the story. But that part of the prophecy did come true. About a year after he marched through Jerusalem, 
Alexander the Great had finished his conquering and he was resting at a palace in Babylon. And this man who had never been defeated in battle got sick and died. Just got sick and died. Like out of nowhere. Just kind of like the horn fell off, you know? It's just exactly like it was. There was no attack. There was no nothing. He just, boom, and he was done. He was done. Age of 32, not in battle, but by a mysterious fever. Now, what happened in Daniel's vision after the one horn falls off, four more grow in its place? Well, you know what happened in history. After Alexander died, the Greek empire was divided into four parts under four kings. And Gabriel specifically says that here in this chapter. He says, these are four kings that will rise up out of Greece. And then we came to that weird part that like, we're tracking there until the one extra little horn sprouts up. How does a horn grow a horn? I don't know. It's a vision. It's a vision. So maybe we shouldn't worry about that part so much. So there's this one more horn that grows. Now, doing what we understand here, we know that the, the four horns are the four divisions of the Greek Empire. And if another little horn is sprouting from one of those horns, what would it tell us? That it's a king that came out of one of the divisions of the Greek Empire. Okay, that's simple enough. We're there so far. Um, so that, that little horn's going to represent a king uh, that came out of one part of the Greek Empire. Okay, so if I were to ask you a question, who is the evilest person ever, ever, just evil, evil, evil ruler, what would you say? Somebody, Satan, maybe? But uh, Nero, okay, Nero... Um, Herod, evil guy. What about more recently? I mean, obviously. Hitler. Hitler. I expected you guys to be screaming Hitler at me from the beginning. Like, Hitler. He's, he is more recent. The evil, evil, evil guy. No excusing what Hitler did, and, and Hitler greatly persecuted the Jewish people. However, if you asked Jewish people living in Jesus' day, who's the most evil guy ever, they probably would have said the name Antiochus. Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes. I think we have a picture of him. Kind of creepy looking dude. He looks like Voldemort from them Harry Potter movies. He's a creepy looking guy. Um, it's a statue, so I don't, I don't know how accurate that is. He's, he's a creepy looking guy. Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, he was a king of one of those parts of the Greek Empire. Remember, four parts, the Greek Empire has four parts after the death of Alexander. And this was the part that was over like towards Babylon. And he is the king of that part of the Greek Empire. This is like 150, 200 years before the birth of Jesus. One of the greatest villains in history that nobody has ever heard of. At least not, uh, some Jewish families would mention his name in Jewish traditions, and we'll see why, but most people don't even know this guy exists he he ruled one part the the old what was old babylon what we would think of as like syria and iraq today okay and he was forever trying to fight with the greek empire that controlled egypt we don't think of egypt as ever being greek right well you ever heard of cleopatra famous egyptian queen right but her ancestry wasn't Egyptian at all. She was one of these Greek rulers of Egypt. 
Her ancestor was called Ptolemy, who was a general and maybe a half-brother of Alexander. And when Alexander died, Ptolemy claimed Egypt as his territory, and the Ptolemaic dynasty was began. And Cleopatra, famous Egyptian, was an Egyptian at all. Now, I'm looking out in this crowd. That's the most shocking thing I've said to y'all today based on your faces. It's like he's... I, I mean, I've told you about a goat of corn. And you're like, goat of corns, I can buy that. But Cleopatra wasn't Egyptian? What kind of nonsense are you spouting, preacher? I don't know. I haven't, I haven't watched... There's a lot of movies I haven't watched, so I've got to catch up. So, yeah, Cleopatra was not ethnically Egyptian. She was Greek. Anyway, there you go. You'll win that one on Trivia Night. Was Cleopatra really Egyptian? No, they ruled Egypt. So, hey, there we go. Mind-blowing today. <laughs> the rest of Hey, if you can buy that, I can sell you the rest of this stuff cheap. Anyway, but it's just true. <laughs> yeah, so Antiochus, now this is before Cleopatra. This is like 100 years before Cleopatra. Cleopatra lived pretty close to the time of Jesus, less than 100 years before Jesus. So, Antiochus, who ruled the what was called the uh, Seleucid, the Seleucid Empire, that was the part of Greece that was over like towards Babylon. He was forever trying to attack the the Greek Empire that ruled Egypt. All right, some of Cleopatra's ancestors. So, um, if you know anything about maps, what is sandwiched between Egypt and like the rest of the Middle East? Israel is right there, squished in between, and that territory, Israel, it changed hands between those two parts of the Greek Empire, like back and forth, back and forth. They were always fighting. And Antiochus Epiphanes, he was so mad that he could not take Egypt that he started taking out his frustration on the Jewish people. So he got close to Egypt, and he couldn't get into Egypt, so he just started persecuting the Jews. He was, he was Hitler before Hitler thought about being Hitler. And he was this guy. He was determined to extinguish the Jews or turn them into Greeks at the very least. Um, he continually marched through the Holy Land and took it out on the Jewish people, took out his frustration. For, for most of the time the Greeks were in power, they, they left the Jewish people alone. Maybe that goes back to Alexander sparing the city originally. I don't know. So Antiochus became the first powerful ruler to systematically persecute the Jewish people. Let's read a little bit about it. Let's read some scripture here today. We're never going to do any messages without scripture directly. So this is Daniel 8, verses 9 through 12. And uh, reiterating what we've read so far. So out of one of them, out of one of those four horns that represents the four parts of the Greek empire came a little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. Do we have to think real hard to decide what the glorious land will be? That's the promised land, the holy land, Israel. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. This is, of course, this is um, figurative language here. He, he cast down a lot of the legitimate leaders of the Jewish people here. Uh, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the sanctuary and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. 
So he's, he's going to defile the temple and he's going to stop the sacrifices. Because of the transgression, verse 12, because of the transgression, his army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices and he cast the truth down to the ground. He did all of this and prospered. Antiochus made the Jewish religion, for the most part, illegal. He stopped the daily sacrifices at the temple. He burned all the copies of the scriptures that he could find, but he didn't get them all, thankfully. He replaced the legitimate high priest with one of his lapdogs. He defiled the temple with pig's blood and set up an altar to Zeus. And you're saying, why have we never heard of this guy? Great question, because he's horrible. He's a horrible villain. He even eventually walked into the temple and declared himself to be God. That title, Epiphanes, he gave that to himself. It means the great one of God. Antiochus, the great one of God. He called himself that. Now, everybody else called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the madman. Yeah, he's crazy. Crazy guy. He does, doesn't he, though? Isn't that interesting? He does kind of sound like the Antichrist. Maybe we'll get there in just a minute. Um, eventually, the Jewish people revolted against Antiochus under a leader called Judas Maccabeus, or Judas Maccabees. And his nickname was Judas Maccabees, means the hammer. He was Judas the hammer. Y'all thought MC was the first hammer. But it was Judas. And Judas led this big revolt, and he was this huge hero. And, and his ancestors, they weren't exactly kings, but they were kind of like rulers in Israel. Judas Maccabees. That is, by the way, the reason the name Judas was so popular in the time of Jesus. The name Judas was a very common name, a very popular name for boys. There's like six or seven guys in the New Testament named Judas. Two of Jesus' twelve disciples were named Judas. Now, the other one didn't go by Judas <laughs> a little later on for obvious reasons. Jesus had a half-brother named Judas. You've read the book of Jude in the New Testament, right before the book of Revelation? That's written by Jesus' half-brother, whose name was Judas, but they shortened it to Jude because, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Um, after Judas Iscariot did what he did, Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus and and uh, after that, the name Judas was not so popular for boys anymore. Like, like uh, lots of kids were named Judas in that time. So once uh, Judas Maccabees had, had, uh, and the Jews had successfully chased Antiochus out of the city, they purified and restored the temple. And the occasion is still celebrated as a holiday by the Jewish people that we know as Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Antiochus is part of the Hanukkah story. Mo, mo, you know, if, unless you grew up Jewish or been around a lot of Jewish folks, you probably have not heard that part of it. But yeah, that's where it came from. The Hanukkah story is after Antiochus defiled the temple and they cleansed it. So what about Antiochus? Did they capture him? Did they kill him? Did someone get the bad guy Antiochus? Well, no, the people didn't. But the story goes that the Lord struck him with intestinal parasites. Oh, gosh, man, just like, whoo, that's a rough way to go, I assume. Um, I was never called wormy growing up. That was like an insult of a, a kid who was really scrawny was called wormy. How that happened in like, that must be a mountain thing, right? Um, anybody who's not from the mountains, is that like a thing that other people said, that boy of ours, wormy, he's wormy. They never looked at me and said he was wormy. Say, is he going back to the table again? 
Um, no. So he was struck with worms and eaten from the inside. He was already rotten on the inside, yeah. metaphorically. It just became literal. Pretty horrible. And they said that he was miserable and, man, he got what was coming to him. It was, it was a bad deal. Anyway, so why should we care about Antiochus? It's interesting enough, I guess. Why should we care? Well, what was the question that we asked at the beginning? How do we know the Bible is true? Is there a way we can say the Bible is true? Well, all this about Antiochus, pretty specific details, was prophesied beforehand, and it was fulfilled. And we can see in history that it was fulfilled. The Bible can be trusted. There's a, there's a test. You know, God himself said that if there's someone who says they're a prophet, and what they say happens, then you could trust them. But if what they say doesn't happen, you can't trust them. Even one time, even one time if they make a prediction that does not come true, you can't trust it. Well, the Word of God makes prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, and they all come true or are eventually going to come true in relation to the events that are prophesied. And it's again and again and again. Here this prophecy about Antiochus is fulfilled, and it's going to be fulfilled again by someone else. Antiochus was such a horrible bad guy that when the scriptures introduce the idea of the Antichrist, they start with Antiochus as the example. So you're on to something, Lucy. Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, is the starting point for explaining what the Antichrist will be like. Let's read a few more scriptures. Verses 23 through 26. I want you to understand that these verses have a dual application of dual fulfillment they applied first to antiochus and they will apply again to the antichrist later on in the end times you can match it up with what what is described in the book of revelation goes like this in the latter time of their kingdom when the transgressors have reached their fullness a king shall arise having fierce features who understand sinister schemes his power shall be mighty but not by his own power he will destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive and he shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He will rise against the prince of princes. He will be broken without human means. And the vision of the evenings and mornings which is told is true. Therefore seal up the vision for it refers to many days in the future. Dual fulfillment. Antiochus first and Antichrist Ultimately, Antiochus was a fierce tyrant over a region. Antichrist will be a fierce, bloodthirsty tyrant over the world. Antiochus was full of evil, power not his own. Antichrist will literally be empowered and possessed by the devil himself. Antiochus persecuted God's people. Antichrist will try to kill every believer on the planet. Antiochus defiled the temple and declared himself to be God. You've maybe read The Abomination of Desolation. Well, Antichrist will do that too. He'll go into the temple and declare himself God. Antiochus was struck down supernaturally, and the Antichrist will be struck down supernaturally. The prophecy has been fulfilled once. It'll be fulfilled again. Why is this important? Because it shows us we have a word of God that can be trusted. It's weird. I get it. This is weird stuff. But it serves a purpose the Bible dares to do what no other religious text does. It makes specific, predictive prophecy, and then it is fulfilled. Now, Daniel goes on to be even more accurate than this, if you can believe it. And the critics um, 
years, years and years later, hundreds and thousands of years later, people said, well, I, people who didn't believe the Bible was true anyway. So that was their starting point. You get it? They, they, didn't, they already didn't believe the Bible was true. So they looked at Daniel and said, ah, that can't be true. It must have been written after everything. It must have been written like in 165 B.C. Because that was about the time Antiochus lived. And they said, ah, that must have been what it was. Well, there's not really good evidence for that except to say someone says, I can't believe that it was predicted. It has to be after the fact. Well, why would you write a weird allegory about current events? Why not just say, hey, this is what happened when Antiochus was in power. You know, why not write it as a history instead of an allegory? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. The, the people who lived through those days would already know it, and the people who came after couldn't forget it. And then there's another sticky point. Some of the stuff that Daniel predicts happens after 165. BC. And they don't have a good explanation for that, but they stopped talking right about there. Anyway, anyway, unless you want to start with the idea that the word of God is not true, it's pretty obvious. The facts are there. Predictive prophecy shows that the word of God is true and it can be trusted. Alexander believed it and he was a pagan. Jesus believed it. You know, Jesus quotes from the book of Daniel. Okay? Jesus quotes from the book of Daniel. Jesus believed Daniel was legit. And uh, whatever else anybody wants to say, I'm on team Jesus all the way. The, the guy who laid down his life for me, who predicted his death, burial, and resurrection, and then he actually accomplished that, I'm on his team. So that's kind of my default, that whatever else, I'm on team Jesus. We have... A scripture that we can trust. That's the point of this message. We can trust the word of God. We can trust the God behind that word. And the message of the word of God, the ultimate message of the word of God, is Jesus. Is Jesus loves you, and he loves the people that you have a hard time loving, and that there is hope, and there's forgiveness, and there's life, and there's peace in Him, and that the only sensible thing to do in the face of such love is to trust Jesus, to believe, to follow Him. And that is the thing that we should do in response to the message of the Word. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I don't know who's listened to this across the world, but whether they're in this room right now, or on the other side of the planet, receiving this message Lord, I'm praying for the one who needs to believe in Jesus and be saved. I pray that they would trust in Him and give their heart to Him and be forgiven and be made new. And Lord, I pray for, for those of us who believe, but we just we want to have confidence. Thank You, Lord, for the predictive prophecy in Your Word that shows us it can be trusted, that that our faith is not just a blind faith and we don't just believe because it's convenient. We believe because it's true and it's been borne out in your word and your scriptures. And I pray that you will grow our confidence more and more so when we share the truth and love of Jesus, we will know that what we're sharing is verifiable truth. God, we give you the glory and thank you for the message in Daniel. And I pray you'll bless the rest of our study. Go with us, Lord, and may we live lives that honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being a part of this today. Lord willing, we'll be in Daniel 9 next week. And boy, is it really, really interesting. 
Uh, may end up having to make that into two messages. We'll, we'll see. But I will see you guys next week. Hope you have a great one. Let's send them off with a little bit of music. What do you say? All right. Take care. Catch you next time.